3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. You are listening to Monday Breakfast on 3CR. Good morning. It is freezing outside. It was 2 degrees when I left the house. It's now 3 degrees. And a very interesting uh, piece just then on Beyond Zero about autonomous vehicles. And um, I'm just listening to some of the impacts of cars on our streets just then. It makes me feel guilty about driving in here in the cold. But um, I must say, I do love listening to the radio in the car. It's one of the ways that you know, I enjoy 3CR and other amazing programming made in Australia. And very sadly, the radio in my car has just gone kaput. So I feel a little unmoored from the news of the world, having not getting my normal way of uh, getting that into the system. Uh, my name is Jackson. I'm in the studio alone. But um, very happily, uh, I'm going to be joined on the phone by James Brennan, who is on holidays, but has kindly got up early and sunny Brisbane to talk to us about a few issues. Um, So yeah, since he's got up early, without much further ado, it's time for Alternative News. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn to shout it, some won't. But sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty, say you're gonna have to get right down to the real nitty-gritty. Let's get right down to the real nitty-gritty now. So that sound does mean it is time for alternative news, and I believe James is on the line. Good morning, James. Good morning, everyone. It's a beautiful 15 degrees currently in Brisbane, and we're going to get up to a top of 23, 24 today. Um, but it's lovely. Already, you know, sweating a little bit. <laughs> I heard you say it's two degrees in Melbourne. It's three. Three. Like, yeah, three degrees. Three. Okay. Yeah. It's lovely. Just like it is actually, it's quite a beautiful, crisp morning. You know, it's not drizzling or sleeting or snowing. You know, you got to take, got to take the positives. But um, how is how is your trip been? How is the countryside uh, that you've been driving through? How is the what? Sorry, the countryside. Have you driven oh, up, to, up to Brisbane? Side. No, no, I have flown. Um, it was good. We had a large delay on the way um, flying up here, but that's fine. Mm. Um. It is it is great to be um, to get a bit of warm weather because it is uh, freezing in Melbourne, so mm. it's been nice and just seeing some different things up here. Um, but yeah, thanks for having me on Alternative News. Yeah, does um, uh, what has caught your eye over the last week? Um, well, I guess one of the things is we've had the uh, midterm elections in the US mm-hmm. um, and Alexandria. Ocasio Cortez um, was someone who, you know, I guess garnered a lot of attention where um, she's 28 years old, she's never held public office, and she defeated a 10-term Republican uh, in New York. Um, So, yeah, I think that's pretty interesting. She's got, you know, very kind of left sort of views and policies and things like that. 
Uh, hopefully that's a sign of things to come for what might be happening in America in the next little while. So she does identify as a socialist, but she is on the Democratic ticket? Yeah, I believe so. Um, she's a member of the Democratic Socialists of America, and she defeated um, Representative Joseph Crowley, a 19-year incumbent and Queen's political stalwart who had not faced a primary, primary challenger in 14 years. So it's in the city of New York as well. That's where, So in a major metropolitan city uh, in, in Queens and the Bronx, it looks like. Um, yeah, that's a really... I'm just having a look online at the moment. She looks like an incredibly passionate speaker as well. I'll have to have a look into that. Yeah, someone who is like an organiser and activist in the community. So, yeah. Hmm. I think it, it's going to be interesting to see... You know, some of the other, I, I haven't sort of delved further into the um, midterm elections as yet, but it's going to be interesting to see what happens with that. And then, you know, if that's kind of replicated in the elections um, in a couple of years' time. I, I remember during the Bush elections that there were times when, um, you know, Bush was deeply unpopular president. Mm-hmm. And in times during the midterms that, they, they did quite badly and then were able to gain traction back in the election. So I don't think it doesn't necessarily mean it will translate into Trump. Um, you know, if they do have a poor showing that they will, Trump will lose, but something to monitor anyway. Mm. Yeah, it looks like she's got some pretty uh, spectacular policies. You know, something as mad as universal health care resulting in jobs, thousands of jobs for American citizens, federal jobs, you know, secure jobs, and um, but at the same time, the abolition, the abolition of uh, the infamous ICE, the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency, kind of like border protection here in Australia, um, yeah. So that's uh, that that's um, encouraging, absolutely. Yeah, and that's something we saw stop last week was the um, separation, separating of children as a policy. Mm. Um, the I'm not sure what's going to happen in practice with that, but, yeah, watch and see, I guess. Here in Australia, I was, um, you know, just very discouraged by the passing of the uh, government's so-called tax reform package. Um, There's an article on Green Left Weekly uh, that really mirrors the thoughts that I have about it, that it feels like the uh, deconstruction of the or the beginning of the deconstruction or the removal of a progressive tax system on the way to a flat tax system, which has always been the aim of conservative parties um, fiscally to have uh, the same tax rate paid by uh, those who are earning very little and those who are earning a lot. In fact, by 2024, uh, according to this article in Green Left by Jim McElroy. Um, People earning two hundred thousand dollars a year will pay the exact same tax rate as someone on forty-one thousand dollars a year. So I'm not sure how the government thinks that someone earning forty thousand and someone earning two hundred thousand have the same obligation uh, to support society um, or to be supported by society, um, as it were. Um, and yeah, I can't remember the exact figures, but I remember watching when the budget was um, handed out that. It was a massive amount they talked about with bringing the flat tax, what that was going to mean for the Australian economy, that there's going to be a huge financial loss because of that as well. Well, it's $144 billion of lost income yep. by not taxing these very high earners. And you know, judging by the government's record 
of where services will be cut. You'd imagine、mm. it will be efficiency gains in things, places like、uh, the Department of Human Services, which manages Centrelink, in places like、um, the National Broadcaster. In places like、um, uh, legal aid, which we've seen cut significantly already under this government,、uh, yeah, health and education, you know,、um, and in, and invest and I just don't understand how a government can continue to provide、uh, the same services as it has, and even more services. Our population grows and ages, and all those types of things with a, such an enormous、um, handout to、uh, middle and high income earners, and of course, you know these. What's so frustrating is the language in a lot of the mainstream media is that everyone gets a tax break, like everyone gets a car on Oprah, you know. But if you're earning eighteen thousand dollars, you know your tax refund over the entire year will increase will, will be two hundred dollars. Meanwhile,、uh, you know if you're earning two hundred thousand dollars, you're going to be getting a hell of a lot more back. Um, in fact, even even for like a middle income earner, someone earning between thirty seven and ninety thousand dollars, you know, the the tax back is going to be around ten dollars a week across an entire year, extra in your pocket. But that one hundred and forty billion is going to be cut from services that you're regularly going to be using, you know, cut from local schools,、uh, you know, Medicare things like that. That would be my my expectation. Yeah, we've already seen that the proposed attacks on、um, the ABC and things like that as well.、Mm. As um, you know, Cassandra Goldie from the Australian Council of Social Services says that the tax package is gambling with the future of our medical services, aged care services, disability services, and social security payments. Most of us rely upon at some stage in our life. Essential services will lose funding because tax cuts have to be paid for. When that when that happens, every person in Australia loses. We all have to pay for services that in Australia have been universally available to us all historically. So yeah, it just seems very strange to me that at a time of rising、um, wealth inequality, you know, that this government thinks that it's appropriate to remove one of the key mechanisms for wealth redistribution that we have, which is a progressive tax system. And at the same time, you know, you've got these enormous cuts to business as well. So that that's another loss of income. You just wonder what, how the government is planning to continue to del- to deliver services. And I think it, even if they do,、uh, you know, even if Labor did get into power and say that they were going to wind those things back, it it really makes you think that, you know, how can you trust governments to just come in completely change these,、uh, you know, cuts like change the way services are provided or handed out and things like that, and then bring it back and then change it and, you know, it makes you think that we really need.、Uh, System outside of that, in order to to govern these kind of things, like to put all of the the funding for services for、um, public services and things like that into a separate kind of legislation that can't be manipulated in a political way.、Mm, yeah, I think that's a really good. Well, it's it's actually interesting. I. Up next on the show, and you know, in my eagerness to talk to you up in sunny Brisbane, I didn't really give a rundown of the show, but we're going to hear first from Robbie Thorpe about the government's efforts to um, uh, play a role, or you know.、Um, Fast track a treaty process with Indigenous people here in Victoria,、uh, you know, which is another area where government perhaps is not best equipped or is not going about it in exactly the right way, according to Robbie. And I and I probably should get on with playing that because otherwise we'll run out of time. We've got a big show to get through. Do you want to stay on the line while I run through what we've got on the show today? Sure. 
So, yeah, first up, we've got your chat with Robbie, which I think you had last week. And then we've got a really interesting uh, piece that uh, James McKenzie from In Your Face is talking with Sally Goldner from Out of the Pan and Jack's Jackie Brown, who's a uh, TGD activist, trans and gender diverse activist. And they're talking about um, a video that's been made by Queer Space at Drum and Services called It's More Complicated Than Yes that looks at responses from the LGBTIQ plus community to the postal survey and how complex that process was and how it um, perhaps uh, looking at um, how some voices were perhaps uh, marginalized and underrepresented during uh, the same-sex marriage debate as it was often called Uh, so that's a two-part piece that will run up to over the wall at 7.50 we've got over the wall um, Peter Davis has uh, more on the um, the cashless credit card for Centrelink users um, yeah, one of the most draconian efforts from the government to control the lives of the poor uh, by giving them uh, these cashless credit cards uh, that can only be spent on certain things and then at 8 o'clock we're going to be joined in the studio by Jackson Fairchild from org to kind of continue and expand our conversation we were having uh, a few weeks ago about male violence we're going to be talking specifically about toxic masculinity and how uh, what what that is i think it's something that gets bandied about a lot but what it means toxic masculinity and how it kind of uh, is insidious within our society within the lives of uh, men and then how that impacts uh, the people living with those men uh, yeah so i think that'll be a really good conversation and that's pretty much our show for the day well, it sounds like a great show, and I think it's really good to, particularly what you said about the um, last interview, to continue that discussion that we started having a couple of weeks ago. Sounds really great. Yeah, well, thank you so much for getting up early, and um, enjoy the rest of your holiday. Thank you. And now we're going to hear from Robbie. I think Robbie goes straight into it, and uh, he's talking about the treaty process here in Victoria. You know, this is not a treaty. This is just domestic colonisers' law, same as per usual. Nothing's changed. There's been no end of hostilities. There's been no truth commission. There's been no war crimes commission. People have got no idea why they would be treating with the original people of this land, I don't think. It's not been explained to them. And the, the treaty process, the treaty argument is not the initiative of the state government people should remember that not that long ago all of them, all the state bipartisan and their cronies their corporate Aboriginal organisations and other bureaucracies were all pushing for constitutional assimilation not all that long ago and this is a, a, a call by the, by the Aboriginal community to talk about treaty meaning treaty justice first and then you know, what we should be talking about you know, what are the effects of not having a treaty for 240 years? That needs to be the issue and what's discussed rather than uh, just uh, with indecent haste rushing this process through without any international uh, legal scrutiny involved whatsoever, which means it's just another criminal act committed against the original people. So at this present time, it's racist rubbish. But... Uh, it is an opportunity. It's not being forced to assimilate into their backward constitution. That's one thing. And that was a major victory last year by Aboriginal people. People should re- realise that and recognise what it is. With no, with no uh, support, there was no, uh, no campaign, there was no money, there was no resources for Aboriginal people up against it all, and yet they defeated that process. 
that, the that basis rec- for yeah. treaty is there now, but it's got to be international scrutinised, otherwise it's rubbish. That the recognised campaign seemed to be something that it was just really forced through and it seemed to be a fait accompli, but it just shows the the power of being able to influence change. And I, I think it, it happened with, you know, little um, sort of mainstream press or any kind of infiltration of what people actually understand. And quickly that campaign was really shifted to to talk about treaty as say there's issues around what that actually means. But the recognised campaign has really been um, put to the back burner. That's right. And this recognise and, and constitutional inclusion has been around since 1967 when the federal government took control of our affairs away from these racist, demonic states and territories for good reason. They criminally neglected our people to the point it was genocide so that the federal government took responsibility for our affairs. Now, we're discussing what's worse, which one of them are worse. We've just been a political football in between. Mm-hmm. You know, when Native Title came out, it became the responsibility of the states all of a sudden. You know, it's, it's just so disgustingly racist, this country. You know, you've got to have an end of hostilities first. Without that, treaty's not, not relevant. You've got to have a, a, a truth commission or a war crimes commission to t- see what you're talking about in terms of the justice issue. If you don't do that, you're not treating anybody any... You know, there's no treaty there. There's no treaty process. Treaty's about ending war, mm. creating a proper legal foundation. Australia can't talk about that. Not like America can. You know, at least America acknowledged other people in on the continent. Australia can't say that and should keep their mouth shut about any human rights issues anywhere on this planet, Australia. They're a disgrace to humanity. It's a profanity. They're in denial, and that's insanity. We saw in South Africa some of those kind of... Can you just pause that for a minute, brother? Yes. Well, yeah, we saw in South Africa some of the, the kind of commissions that were set up there to get people to listen to people's stories of, of the kind of torment and torture and, and how the ripped communities apart there. And I think that would be a part of the kind of... I mean, obviously, this, the end result there is, is far from a perfect situation, but just at that kind of that point... That's something that could be a part of a treaty discussion here. It's interesting you mentioned South Africa because they adopted a process from this country called apartheid, which mm. was based, based on the Reserve Act. And that was created in 1830 in Tasmania by a one Augustus Robinson, the father of apartheid. Now, that was a transported to South Africa in 1950. It was a good way to deal with the blacks, mm. outside, out of mine, separate... You know, it was pioneered in Australia. Now, when that torment of of apartheid law in South Africa was overturned after that, you know, a long period of time, it seemed Mandela and all those efforts of those people for such a long time, they had a thing called a, a truth and reconciliation process. In Australia, they just had a reconciliation process. That's the difference, folks, between those two processes. There's no truth here. Australia's a liar, a thief and a murderer. Fraud built on uh, an undeclared war and a secret invasion using weapons of mass destruction pioneered the new form of warfare globally. It's a similar. You, you, say, you, you have all this proper, racist propaganda about these people. You say that they've got these weapons, you go and invade them. Right? It's all about stealing the resources, people. You know, you're not stupid, are you? Yeah, this has been going on for 250 years. In 2020, will be 250 years of the illegal occupation of Australia. 
built on rape, murder, mass murder, theft and lies. You know, it's all hypocrisy. You know, it's most, one of the most extreme forms of genocide that's gone on, unrecognised. Mm. You know, it's, you know, the Nazis operated for 10 years exterminating people. They were educated by Australia. They pioneered eugenics here. That university called Melbourne University is responsible there as well. They're responsible for that, you know, the genetically interfering with stuff, genetically modifying things. It's all pioneered in, in uh, the land of the liar and the home of the thief, where, the, where their constitution's white only. It's a bastion of white supremacy. So how do we trust these same institutions to have... Exactly. (laughs) We got no faith, and we got no faith in these so-called Aboriginal institutions Mm. who are responsible for, you know, look at the 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 rise in incarceration. We've Mm. had Aboriginal legal services around for forty years. Let's have a look at the incomes and the outcomes of these organisations. Why are they the little pets of the state, and and childcare too? Why have we got the highest rate of child removal? since these things were snatched out of the hands of the Aboriginal people. They were community-controlled and community-based. We set them up, and despite of the government's duty of care and fiduciary obligation, they took responsibility for our welfare. They fed us rations. Right now, what's going on now? You know, these childcare agencies is one of the biggest pedophile nests in the country. And what's the legal service doing? Jailing us at a highest rate of ever of all time. I can't argue the question of jurisdiction. Not one of our people should be in your filthy, stinking, rotten, illegal jails on our sacred land. How dare you? How dare you, Australia? You know, your numbers come up. You know, you can't lie no more. They say, Confucius says, you can only hide so things for so long, like the moon and the stars and the truth. Sooner or later it's going to emerge. What are you going to do then, Australia? It's all stolen property. Who are you selling it to? Privatising all this, all these these assets don't belong to you. Australia's a thief, right? If you can prove it otherwise, show us, demonstrate it. Have you got any documents to demonstrate your right to occupy our land or apply your dark age bullshit law here? Now, they're just simple questions. Can't answer them, can you? That's why they, you know, they do what they do to Aboriginal people. They can't deal with reality. It's a deep state of denial here. And den- denial's not just a river in Europe, or Egypt, is it? <laughs> it's so, a raging torrent here. What do you think people who are, you know, who have been thinking about these questions and are following the news about the treaty, what, what kind of things do you think Aboriginal, non-Aboriginal people can do to try to start these conversations and move towards a, a place that can, you know, move, you know, perhaps like you say, it's, it's outside of the institutions, including the government, that we need to have these conversations and... How do we do that? Absolutely. And I think the treaty, if, it's, if, if you follow the, the treaty law, it's, got, it's international standard law here. They're already international standards, right? If you follow that process, treaty can be a win-win situation. You can remove the criminal element in the country. You can get rid of the Crown, the Commonwealth and the state. Criminal genocide is proven, right? You might want to leave the local government because that's an infrastructure on the ground, the people. It's on the, the municipal shires on the tribal land. Let's knock up an agreement and get rid of the rest. You know, right? We want to protect this land and its people. What about a constitution for the people, by the people, Australia? Or you've got this foreign policy that's racist, sexist, demonic in the extreme. You want to run with that? Well, you know, you've got the power. I don't believe in democracy. We've already got a law here. 
sustainable, fair. We don't need backward dark age colonisers managing our children, our heritage, our royalties, our welfare and everything else in our lives. You want to close the gap? Shut your mouth and back off. You're deluded. You're not our authority and you're not our superiors. Get it? Australia's just one big hell of a human rights abuse. It's a profanity. They've denied our humanity since the day they got here. That's why you've got people raping and murdering like you have. You're sick. You're mentally ill. That's what denialism is, Australia. Wake up. Step up. All you've created is a toxic waste dump here. You don't give a fuck about your own children. That's what it says to me. You know, you're a joke. You're lawless. You're racist in the extreme. You're a Nazi wet dream. You know, what else do you need to know? You haven't got treaty consent or jurisdiction if you understand law. You know, just have try to imagine 250 years of putting up with that sort of shit mentality. Mm. We knew what their intent was 250 years ago on the 90 mile beach. Crowatungalung land. Bunjunrook seen the dogs. They knew what their intent was then. They were firing cannons at us. Has anything changed? It's not cutlass and carbines and diseases no more. It's just more subtle uses the pen with these bureaucrats here. We've still got a minister for our affairs, for Christ's sake. Do you think we need a backward house from the streets of London managing our affairs? Where do you get off, Australia? You know, we're far more advanced and superior than your bullshit law will ever be. And you're proven. We had a pristine environment. We had healthy people. What do you got, Australia? You got no future for your children. Good on you. The only way you can get out of this is by healing the spirit of this land. And you know where that is, don't you? It's with our elders. And they've been cut out of the treaty process. So you can have these bullshit corporate dogs, parasites, feeding off the welfare, creating this middle-class blackout there so they can do your business with. Remember the king plates they put out there back in the day? They wanted to have Aboriginal leadership so they could get them to sell out their land. It's been going on since day one. What about the native police forces that came out of Melbourne town? Wurundjeri, Bunurong, Kulin Nation. What about the war crimes those people committed on the Aboriginal people here for the state on your horseback with, your, with your, your, your uniforms and your orders? Now I'm talking about Barak and Wonga and other heroes in the eyes of the white man here. They're not my heroes. They're war criminals. That's why we need to have a war crimes commission. Not just for white crimes against our people, but for the blacks who committed crimes against our people. So... Bring it on. It's not a race thing. It's about humanity at the end of the day. Well, I think um, for any listeners as well, if you want to engage in ways, um, I'd say particularly as non-Aboriginal supporters, that you should check out Claire Land's book, Decolonising Solidarity. It has some uh, really great info and people on, you know, I think something that Robbie's talked a lot about is uh, sitting with the discomfort of the racism that... Um, we are all a part of and I think that there's a lot to kind of understand and try to work through and probably you know more than that you should check out Robbie's shows because he is on the air on 3CR um, a number of times throughout the week and 
you can hear a lot more from Robbie. And thanks so much for joining us. No worries, brother. I just want to say one more thing. Without a treaty, it remains, Australia remains a crime scene. You haven't got consent and you haven't got a proper legal foundation. Do yourself a favour. You know, it's a, it can be a win-win situation. You know, why is Australia paying all these taxes to these four layers of useless, loud-ass government? You can sort that out in the process and make these multinational mining companies pay for their damages. Mm. You know, why aren't they paying tax? They're just destroying this place, folks, and, you, and it's allowed to happen by the the demography of Australia or the demographics or the, the democracy of Australia is allowing that to happen. So people got themselves to blame. You're, you're, you're on, you know, you've got your, your family shares in what's going on in these mining companies elsewhere. You can't... You, you can't have it both ways, folks. Right? Is it, and by the way, we've already got a law here, sustainable one, precedes yours. And, uh, you know, what they say, first in law is best in law. If you don't like it, see you later. That was Robbie Thorpe in conversation with James Brennan about the um, continued discussion around a treaty and the complexity of what that could look like and... It is NAIDOC week next week. Uh, 3CR will be doing Beyond the Bars as normal. But it is, um, yeah, it's been an incredible uh, couple of years in Indigenous affairs with um, how close we came to, as Robbie describes, you know, the kind of farcical assimilation into a constitution that doesn't recognise uh, what happened here uh, in this country, the genocide that took place. And, yeah, just the importance of... Uh, naming, speaking, you know, the po- the possibility of transformative justice for Indigenous people and for Australians to, uh, you know, white Australians to deal with what happened and uh, speak the truth and perhaps, you know, have some positive outcomes. And I think, um, yeah, some of the things Robbie was saying there, some of the outcomes we could get go, go above and beyond, um, you know, the basic rights and, um, you know, just recognising what went down. Um, yeah, so keep listening to 3CR to keep hearing about you know, these really important issues. Um, and thanks to James for doing that pre-record. A bit of a, um, a retrospective language warning. Apologies to those um, who heard a few swear words in that. I am sorry about that, but um, obviously it's a really um, uh, emotional and topical and passionate issue. Um, so, yeah, I think we can be forgiven for that, I hope. Up next, we've got an interview that James McKenzie from In Your Face um, conducted with Sally Goldner and Jack's Jackie Brown about a video released by Queerspace at Drum and Services called It's More Complicated Than Yes. You're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. It's More Complex Than Yes is a new Queerspace documentary that reflects on the marriage postal survey time and the issues and emotions it evoked. In the studio, we have 3CR's Sally Goldner, and on the line, we have Jack's Jackie Brown, who both featured in the documentary. Welcome to you both. Hello. Hello, hello. Jax, let's start with you. What did you feel you couldn't say during the postal survey time? I mean, I felt like we had to kind of be... um good, upstanding queer citizens in the sense that we had to pretend or say that if we got marriage equality, our relationship and our lives are going to look just like heterosexual people's lives. Um, so there was a lot, I felt a lot of pressure to um, to kind of uh, 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 pretend I was going to assimilate or be aspiring to kind of a heterosexual-ish kind of 
mould for my relationship and my life, which as a queer person, I really don't. So I felt like there was a lot of um, external pressure through what was being said about queer people in the media, but also in our communities to kind of, um, yeah, to, to, to pretend marriage equality was the most important and the biggest issue and the only issue that we should be fighting for at that time as queer people. And I think there's a lot of other issues that really need fighting for. Sally, what did you feel you couldn't say during the campaign? I felt I couldn't say that um, trans people, in my opinion, were thrown under the bus, along with others, such as bi, and obviously they're the groups that I can identify with, but I totally and I totally acknowledge others felt the same. Um, and that's you know an example of that was the very almost the start of the whole thing the night of the Liberal Party party room meeting and two of our own community spokespeople are in front of the media on ABC 24 and go the gay and lesbian community are incredibly disappointed with this and the other example that was a video by Karen Phelps which you know pulled out a bit of that horrible Christian lobby ad which was a gender issue about my son's going to have to wear a dress next year or whatever the silly comment was and then goes the gay and lesbian community is going to face debate well that's a trans issue it was like we were swept under the rug we were too embarrassing and we really felt betrayed and abandoned by a lot of our so-called community leaders. Jax, you talk in the documentary about community pressure to feel grateful during the marriage campaign. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that there was this feeling of we should be grateful um, that we get to uh, have a chance to possibly have marriage equality in this country. Um, We should be grateful that we're supposedly moving towards equality. Um, And and I just felt deeply, deeply sad that... um, that we were being subject to some of this stuff. At the time, my my partner was pregnant with our child and we were trying to create a rainbow family and yet there was all this stuff going on in the media about should queer people um, be parents, what does parenting look like for them, you know, um, assuming that we were going to be some kind of terrible parents to children. And so it was a a real um, emotional time for me. with having all this stuff going on in my personal life and then feeling like, um, you know, my identities were really kind of up for debate in the media and in this really, really negative um, um, way. And I, and I really felt how, how could I be resilient in the face of that? And more importantly at the time, how could I teach my future child like resilience when um, she's going to encounter homophobia and biphobia and transphobia throughout her life? Um, and the marriage equality debate really just brought some of the worst of that out. What's it like now for you as a, as an activist and as a person that was deeply affected by the campaign? Uh, what sort of residue are you dealing with from that emotionally? Um, look, I think going to this film screening last night, uh, for me personally, and I know for a number of people that were in the audience, was a really emotional experience because we've been carrying the weight of what we had to go through, what we were subjected to um, around with us for, you know, over six months now. And we've really had no place to put that. I mean, when the Yes vote was announced, there was a lot of pressure to celebrate, to be like, wow, there's this fabulous thing and we've got equality now and let's all go out and get drunk. And I know for me and my partner and a lot of our friends, we just felt exhausted and tired and just, you know, worn down by it all. And so I've been carrying that feeling around of, what do I do with all those emotions that that came up for me um, because of the things that were said about us? Where do we put that? Um, 
And I think we're still a long way from achieving actual meaningful equality for LGBTIQ people. So, um, yeah, it's kind of like a lot of heterosexual people, I think, think that, you know, we've got this thing now, we've got marriage equality and therefore we've got equality. And it, it pushes away bigger conversations that we need to have around what does actual meaningful equality look like for LGBTIQ people. Of course, the documentary was shown last night. It features 20 people from the community. There was also a panel discussion, which you were both involved with. Sally, you've highlighted that the postal survey campaign was damaging to trans people and their sense of rights. Can you elaborate a bit more on that? Yes, certainly many, you know, it was a fair comment to say that trans issues were used as a diversion tactic when the sort of issues were, that were, you know, that were raised were nothing to do with why two people can't get married regardless of a, a little box on a birth certificate. And it's, you know, talking with people, there are many trans people who still haven't re-engaged with social media. They're still too fragile and upset. And that's worrying and, you know, it's worrying me that I hear comments and I want to focus on the comment, not the person. In the interview Penny Wong did last month, she said everyone's moved on now. I'm with Jax in what Jax said, that there's this whole thing we had to be happy and grateful and, you know, celebrate. And I'm trying to worry about whether some of the people in my community are alive. Trigger warning, there were, there was an increase in transphobic assaults during and just after the survey period. And that's got to be traumatic. How, how are we supposed to celebrate that? And I think there was, there was, there has been a lack of empathy. But I suppose my thought is now, okay, we've, dare I say, we've had the wedding, we've had the honeymoon, we've got rid of that, you know, and we've had the hangover, so to speak. Now we've got to get down to some hard work about how our rainbow communities, plural, work together mm. with true equality and respect. Jax, do you find Penny Wong's comments about moving on insulting? Yes, yeah, I do. Yeah, I mean, as I just said, I think that we still have a lot to process about what we had to go through. Um, And I know for a lot of people, myself included, it brought up a lot of stuff um, from, you know, when I was younger, from when I was, you know, a young kid living in the country, kind of wondering what my future could look like and and feeling really isolated and alone. Um, And so a lot of us are still processing. We haven't moved on and we need to create spaces like... I hope we did last night and I hope this film creates where we can have those bigger, more difficult conversations about, you know, what is the hangover from what we had to go through? What are the issues that still need fighting for? And we need to come together as a community and and really still advocate for them. And by saying, you know, it's over, it's done, um, kind of assumes there's been a level of closure on many of us Um, there hasn't been closure and we're still kind of looking for what that might look like. Yeah, look, um, very again, very much similar. Um, My issue from, you know, growing up was abandonment and isolation, if you like, feeling isolated. I mean, 13 years at an all-boys school, how isolated does it get? There were other issues. And that's what came back for me when when the people I was supposed to trust... You know, not not our politicians, but our so-called rainbow community leaders sold us out. We heard last night about how the advertising strategy was framed in a certain way. Now, I'm not going to stereotype any group, including certain occupation, but advertising and marketing at its worst has one aim, get the sale. Never mind the details, the people or the ethics. So we've pretty much got confirmation that it was a deliberate choice. And that leads to me as to how we get closure. I've got to say, I was a bit pretty flat last night. But I'm feeling a bit more determined this morning that maybe it's helped shift some energy. I think it's the film has helped galvanise the desire to say we now have to have some pretty 
um, careful conversations within the rainbow community and possibly some tough ones about how we work together better in the future. The fact that someone thinks trans people and bi people can be thrown under the bus, that implies that they think within our own so-called rainbow, that means they imply that implies that we're less than equal. And that's got to change. And the thing is, it's still happening. Only in the last month, a person was giving a submission to an LGBTI, we'll say, policy group, and they claimed there were no bisexual justice issues outstanding in Victoria, which is bunkum. Wow. And they didn't consult with bi communities. This is the part that's frustrating me. And if we're going to move into an era where we now start catching up bi and trans, and I will speak, I will say I'm pretty, pretty confident intersex would want some things done too, we've got to consult with um, bi, trans, intersex specific groups, not think, say, cisgender people can speak for, for trans and gender diverse, etc. Sally, you've been speaking out a lot about bi erasure, and I thank you for that because I think it's really, really necessary. You've been highlighting the lack of specifically funded projects aimed at the bi community. What should the Andrews government fund as a priority? I think that a big issue which would have a lot of things, um, would have a lot of benefits, is checking in whether organisations that, say, claim to be LGBTI really are B-inclusive. And, you know, I will... I'll give a hint and say, watch this space. There's a say, the saying, the squeaky wheel gets the most attention. Well, we're beginning to get some attention, is all I can say for the moment, and that's most welcome. But if we did something that checked into that, we'd build capacity. There'd be more, say, community service organisations, particularly in, say, regional and rural areas, um, where bi people could go for support and you know, know that they didn't have to do a bi 101 to a health professional, etc. And obviously that, that sort of thing's got to be implemented and planned by um, people with the lived experience in the first place. You are tuned into 3CR Monday Breakfast. That was the voice of Sally Goldner, who was talking about uh, what the Andrews government could do to include uh, trans and bi people uh, in their service provision, especially in regional Victoria, part of a broader conversation about um, groups who felt <clears throat> marginalised or lacking a voice during the uh, quote-unquote same-sex marriage debate. We're going to hear the second half of that interview in just a moment. Just wanted to let our listeners know who are looking forward to hearing Over the Wall at 7.50. It'll be on at about 7.55am this morning. I apologise for that. Just running a little behind. Um, yeah, you're tuned in to 3CR Monday Breakfast. 3CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall, and eco-friendly paper and printing outfit, Earth Greetings. You can check them out at nibs.org.au and earthgreetings.com.au. And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03 9419 Jax, what lessons can the queer community learn about creating equality and accepting diversity as a result of this marriage survey? Mm, I mean, I think that's a great question and that's kind of the question that we need to keep asking, not just myself and Sally, but, you know, everyone else in, involved in the community too. Um, I mean, I think we need to get better at intersectionality and, and thinking about identities as being intersectional. And we talked a bit about that after the film on the panel last night as a kind of key area that we need to start thinking about and having those really tough conversations about 
you know, what we need to do better. If somebody is trying to have a conversation with you about, um, you know, I'm a person with a disability, for instance, and I try and talk a lot about what access would mean for me and the spaces in the queer community that I can't access and how we could create better access. And sometimes those conversations are really hard and often people don't want to engage with in them. Um, so I think we need to get better at um, at thinking about intersectionality and identities and what that actually means and allowing space for the people who've been most marginalised in our communities to actually start to articulate and explore um, what equality would actually mean for them. As a queer person with a disability, what are the main discrimination issues that you experience within the LGBTIQ community? Um, look, I mean, one of them is definitely lack of access to accessible, inclusive spaces in the queer community. Like often our hottest, um, most interesting parties are up two flights of stairs in a little dark room. And I think that they're up there because, you know, the history of trans, um, bi and homophobia is that we've had to kind of find little hot spaces to get hot and heavy together away from the, the potential threat of violence. But they're, they're up there, and that means that a lot of people with disabilities, a variety of different kind of disabilities, aren't in those spaces, so they aren't visible. So people just assume that we don't exist, and that perpetuates this idea that people with disabilities are you know, less desirable than everyone else, less worthy of love, less worthy of a hot one-night stand, all those kind of things. And so when I find my way into those few accessible places, those few accessible parties, people are still surprised that I'm queer and that I'm there and that I want to be there because there's so few people with disabilities that are able to get to the community events. Um, and, I mean, I think people's attitudes around disability need to shift and change from viewing disability as a tragedy or, conversely, as an inspiration to viewing disability as part of human diversity and variation. Um, yeah, so so I guess the attitudinal stuff and the barriers in the built environment are really kind of the key things that don't enable me to participate in queer community to the extent that I would really love to a lot of the time. Sally, Dr Ruth McNair talks in the documentary about debating the community about who's in and who's out. And she said that's even happening at the Pride Centre planning level. Can you fill us in about what's happening there? I found that fascinating. Yeah, I, I must admit, I'm not exactly sure what she means. Mm. I mean, this would have, was recorded six months ago, but we go back, it's coming up for just on a year where we had the, consult, the consultation day on July 1st last year. And unfortunately, it wasn't um, well done. We're a letter from a... Um, transphobic group was read out, you know, will it be safe for women-born women, which is instantly mm. a sign of transphobia and all that sort of thing. And so we're going to have to learn, you know, how we do things respectfully together. And so, yeah, that's what I, I think it's that sort of thing that may, that's my best guess as to what Ruth's referring to. But in that light, you know, it's also how we worked. If we are a rainbow that is intersectional, how we work together. And I am all for to use the phrase, calling people in, you know, sit down, have a conversation, and in Melbourne that may involve a coffee, you know, and just talking things through, and I'm all for that. And if you get, you know, get some change, hooray, onward we go. My challenge is I'm feeling frustrated is that sometimes it's the same old culprits within our rainbow of individuals and organisations who are still talking for other people, you know. 
I'm, I'm got and they're to... self-appointed often, aren't they? Very true, very true, and that's a problem. And it's got to be about listening and learning. It's okay when it comes to diversity to say, "Hey, I didn't, you know, I don't know something. I'm, I'm happy to ask, and I've got to do it. I'm, you know, I don't, you know, I don't understand say everything about what you know Jax's lived experience, and or it was good to see a few weeks ago there was a forum on LGBTI and intellectual disability. Mm-hmm. And so these are the things we need. It's okay to not know. But if you keep doing the same thing when you start knowing, that's where we've got a problem. Or when clearly, say, groups coming back to just my own identities, like, say, trans and bi, are feeling talked for rather than, um, and I'm again, I'm channeling you, Jacks, nothing about us without us, as the saying goes. We've all got to run by that and start coming up with consulting, listening, agreeing to win-win solutions every time, not speaking for other people, because that's where we're getting it wrong and people feel frustrated and abandoned, etc. Look, the marriage campaign really sucked a lot of oxygen out of the room. A lot of issues were swept under the carpet. As you've said, there were many things that people couldn't speak about or didn't feel comfortable talking about. Now the survey's over, all the emotions coming up, is there's a space to deal with those issues. But there's also, I think, a danger period for the community as well mm. because we're at that point where there can be conflict over, over future direction for the community. And as a final question, I want to ask you both, what can the community do to manage that, particularly about potential conflicts over gender identity versus sexuality? I know they shouldn't be mutually exclusive, but some people are framing them as if they are. Uh, Jax, over to you first. I think I might hand over to Sally and hear what she's got to say sure. and have a think while she's no talking. Yeah, it's a great question. Yeah, look, this is the thing. I mean, you know, that is, you know, the what the question in a way gives the answer versus, you know, mm. we've got to stop mm. thinking in terms of either or versus, dare I say, it, binaries and say it plays into the opposition's hands, doesn't it? Well, that's the thing, and I mean, there is the thing. If we sit down and say, okay, we had some problems, we didn't do things well enough, but we're sitting down talking civilly, sensibly, with good process and trying to do it better. It then it not only helps us to be more effective in everything we have to achieve, it does have the bonus side effect, not that I really care what the far right think, but it can shut them up. They can't say, oh, you people don't agree, so we don't have to listen to you. And they want splits, don't they? They want splits. Of course they do. Well, you know, when we sit down and work together effectively, when we genuinely value each other as equal, we'll get things done faster, more effectively, with better results, etc., and I think we can, you know, we've just got to find a good process that's, you know, safe enough to allow that. And I've been in some places where it's happened, so it's not like we have to reinvent a whole new wheel. It just needs some good facilitation with people sitting around the table, so to speak, making sure we've got a diverse range. It may mean a few different conversations with different people at first, you know, trying to iron some things out, but we've got to start it. And this is why I was, as I say, this morning, I'm feeling more um, the energy shifted a bit. We can get this going. And I think I think it's now time that um, there's two things that need to happen to start it. Some of those, well, in my opinion, culprits, we now need to get start writing and say, look, we've got to have some conversations. And also it needs, but the thing I'm convinced of, there's lots of people at the grassroots, not just people who might have been directly disenfranchised who saw it. They're going to be critical too, you know, the... I've had lots of gays and lesbians say to me, yeah, we didn't do it right. And that's very encouraging. And so we'll need their help to sort of maybe put some pressure on the people I'm defining as culprits. But if we can get to the table with good process, then I think we can work it out. Jax, what are your thoughts? Um, I mean, I guess, I guess the fear has always been 
that once we've got marriage equality, that we'll lose um, the gay and lesbian people in the community who maybe feel like that was their main key issue or one of their main key issues and maybe they won't turn up for the more intersectional stuff. I mean, I guess the difficulty is is finding the the things that unite us, the points that unite us that we want to move forward with while allowing space for the diversity and the difference that we all bring into the community. And I think that that's, that's a really big challenge, but that's one of the really beautiful things about working in such a diverse community is to be able to try and think about how can we hold both those very different um, perspectives and opinions and really think about um, what what unites us and what makes us um, move forward together. And I think this film and, and last night and hopefully some future events, creating spaces where we can actually have these conversations, whether it be in person or online, and be really honest and raw with each other and, and gentle and caring at the same time um, is kind of the challenge moving forward. So, yeah, I'm excited to see where we head and what, what comes out of it. So you're both optimistic. Sally, you're optimistic? Look, I think there is, and if there is, a paradox, if you like. The way that the Yes campaign did fr- frame marriage, the you know the using some key words, you know, inclusivity, equality. respect, equality, is what needs to happen. It's that the marriage campaign didn't walk the talk or the yes campaign didn't. Mm. So if we can fine-tune that approach, that's where we have a framework of common values. And I had a conversation with a psychologist a few months ago about this who said, well, who said, well what unites all of you, LGBT and I? And it's like we're fighting this common enemy of queer phobia, and it's not really a good way to unite to fight an enemy. Let's find some positive things. So I gr- the way that... Equality? The- Equality, respect, inclusivity, diversity are good values, but we've got to do it better. And that's where I think we do have a starting point. But now comes the time as we move um, into some of the issues that got left behind where we've got to make sure, as we've said, the voices are at the table. So we've got a starting point. It's not like it has to be confrontational. Dare I say, maybe I'm a bit grumpy about some things, but we can get through that and, and do it. But we're going to have to, we'll need some momentum to do it um, as well. But, you know, it's, I think there is a possibility that it can happen all the same. Jack Stacky Brown and Sally Goldner, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a great pleasure chatting with you both. Always good to be with you. Thank you. You are listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast, and that was Sally Goldner and Jack Jackie Brown in conversation with James McKenzie on In Your Face, which uh, airs on Friday afternoons here on 3CR, uh, just talking about some of the complexities from the same-sex marriage debate. And up next, a little later than normal we have our regular segment over the wall and this week over the wall continues its conversation with Catherine from Hinkler uh, in western australia where people are on the cashless welfare card trials hi i'm peter and welcome to over the wall your weekly segment on 3cr focusing on issues impacting people on social welfare and also people on low income In the coming months on Over the Wall, we're going to attempt an interview with the Department of Human Services Centrelink to ask the difficult questions that people face on Centrelink benefits. Here's a curly question, an example of a person income reporting, for some reason their employer has been late with a pay, or the person themselves may have submitted a timesheet For some reason, the pay 
has not been processed on time and the employer says, well, we can't do anything until the next fortnightly pay period or monthly pay period. What does that person then do in terms of reporting their income to Centrelink? They can report the number of hours they've worked and they can calculate the number of hours times their pay rate per hour and submit a report which will be fairly correct. But the problem is, if they submit that figure which they've calculated, they have no pay slip to actually verify that figure they've submitted for that fortnight because their timesheet or their pay was processed late. According to the Centrelink system, the person would need to report exactly according to the pay slip. Yet, they also need to report if they've worked that fortnight and their earnings. The dilemma being that they can't report an accurate amount and back it up with a pay slip, yet they must report if they've worked. Any of those particular issues that you find really difficult with Centrelink, please contact us over the wall 3cr at gmail.com and send us those questions and we'll include those in our interview with Centrelink. A public service announcement. And today on Over the Wall, we'll continue to focus on the cashless welfare card. 3cr.org.au 3CR, the voice of dissent. I'm Helen Razor, but that's deeply irrelevant. What is relevant is that you're listening to 3CR on, what's that frequency again, dear? 855, I told you, Helen. 855. And what is relevant is that you're not listening to that other crap. So well done. Could you say your name and, and the group, you know, so listeners know who you are? And... My name is Catherine Wilkes and I run the... No Cashless Welfare Debit Card Australia Facebook page. And I also run the No Cashless Debit Card Hinkler Region Facebook. And for people with no experience of using computers, no experience of using smartphone apps, they're just expected to be able to do that suddenly. And they will be going hungry in some circumstances because they're missing out on payments and they're not understanding why because they're not... Um, receiving the point I'm making is they're not receiving any training in how to use this technology. Absolutely, they're not getting any preparation on on the ground. Those sort of information seminars yep. or, or specialised even training through you know agencies. Well, for Hinkler, right, the demographic they're looking at in Hinkler is under 36s, right? New start, family payments, parenting and single, and youth allowance and youth allowance other. That's where they're starting with. At the moment, for the Hinkler trial, that's what they want to do is all under 36s. Whereas everywhere else in the country, it's 18 to 65, including all payments, including disability and carers. Why do you so, think the difference in Hinkler? Personally, I think it was to make sure they didn't get too big a backlash. Because in the beginning, they couldn't work out whether it was going to be all payments, all under 45, under 25. They kept flip-flopping. But the new legislation that they've presented is under 36s. I think they know they'll get a big backlash if they tried to put it on the carers and the disability support pensioners and the elderly. And up to age 65. We've got a, a big population of older unemployed workers up to the age of 65 as well who would also backlash. So I think that's what they were trying to avoid. 
But I'm a very observant person, and I watched Christian Porter do the National Press Club. A Western Australian reporter asked him why Hinkler was going to be different and what would happen once it rolled out here. And he said their aim was that once it rolled out, within 18 months, it would join the full scheme. I don't forget statements like that when I hear politicians make those sort of... Because I don't trust them. Because Sedona's an absolute example of how not to be trusted. Sedona was promised it was going to be voluntary, targeted, and to people on Newstar. And when it came in, it was blanket, ages 18 to 65, including those on disability and carers. So they're light. So... To me, okay, fine, they've done it in the legislation for under 36s now, but they can change the legislation whenever they want. So it needs to be stopped before it can get off the ground. Still a lot of apathy, a lot of um, ignorance from people in the city about what's actually happening with... Absolutely. But then again, see, okay, they, I'll get the local media ring me to do an interview. I'll give them the information like I'm giving you information, and they might print one line. They don't print the information I've given them. I've done media interviews with Channel 9, Channel 7 up here. Yeah. Where, you know, they've taken all this footage. They've asked me all these questions. I've given them all these answers. You see 10 seconds on the news of a, a soundbite of something, but not actual information. All you see is the media spin and the LNP media spin. Mm. And it's all about drugs, alcohol and gambling. So he keeps, um, they keep flip-flopping up here. One minute it's about... 1,000 starving children getting breakfast club. That was their first excuse. Then they claim that because $5 million goes through the pokies in Harvey Bay a month, bear in mind we are a tourism area and we have a lot of self-funded retirees that can go down the pub and sit in the pub and play the pokies. Do you know what I mean? But it's being implied that that $5 million worth of money going through those poker machines is welfare money. So then... They tried the drug and alcohol thing, they've backed off. But Keith Pitt keeps holding up the prop in in Parliament of the Fraser Coast Chronicle news thing, $5 million going through the pokies. It's trying to suggest, I mean, people on Newstar haven't got money to put through the pokies. They've barely got money for rent and food. Do you know what I mean? If you want to be realistic and you're talking about paying an average rent every week and trying to fill a shopping trolley, they don't have enough because Newstar's not enough. Yeah. It hasn't kept up with inflation in 25 years. It's the longest-running austerity program in the world. It's even getting, for the very broad community now, a, a negative opinion about the fact that New Start hasn't gone up for 20 years. We're hearing from business groups that it should be raised. Well, it's only logical, isn't it? 25 years ago, when they put a freeze on it, okay, average rent for a three-bedroom house was 100 to $125 a week. Okay? And you could go and buy... A family's worth shopping for a hundred dollars. Fill up the shopping cart. You know what I mean? Yeah. You could run a car. You could, you and you had enough money to be able to buy clothes and go looking for a job and run a car, pay your, you know, pay your bills. But look at the inflation and the cost of electricity now. The cost of running a car. The cost of rent. The average rent up here is between two sixty and three twenty a week. People on Social Security getting $560 a fortnight, plus maybe some rent assistance, they still can't afford it. Yeah. You know, people who are on New Start now are forced to share housing. doesn't matter what age they are. All right? A lot of people are forced to become homeless. Parents transitioning from parenting payment when their youngest child turns eight 
Yeah, they lose a couple of hundred dollars a fortnight, but that's enough to lose them their housing. Yeah. And there's no affordable housing to go to. Anglicare did a, a, did their usual yearly survey, and this year they came out with three affordable properties across the whole country for a person on a single new start payment. Three yeah. in the whole country. I imagine that to be in the isolated locations? I would, I would assume so. If not, it would be a room rental somewhere. Yes, we now have the Kalgoorlie page, which is up and running for the people in Kalgoorlie to be able to share their experiences with us. Well, thank you for speaking to us and Over the Wall, and we'll be speaking to you again in, in the future and, and, and other people who are also joining the fight against the cashless welfare card. Thank you. No worries. Okay. This is a public service announcement. Yeah, listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast, 855am on your radio dial, or perhaps you're listening sometime in the future, podcasted on 3cr.org.au. And that was Over the Wall, our regular segment that looks at social security uh, and the barriers um, that stand between those who use social security and the advocates that support those people who use it. Uh, just looking at the impact of the cashless welfare card on the trial areas in Western Australia. So thanks as always to Peter for putting that together. Now, a few weeks ago on Monday Breakfast, we had a broad-ranging discussion about men's violence in the wake of Eurydice Dixon's appalling murder. She was one of 30 women already killed by men in Australia this year alone. Speaking with other men over the weekend, it is a terrible thing to be kind of frightened and appalled by the repeated actions of your identified gender versus men. And I wanted to delve further into this topic of uh, toxic masculinity and uh, to do that we're joined in the studio by Jackson Fairchild who's a clinician and educator and the Director of Practice and Learning at No to Violence. Good morning Jackson, thanks for joining us. Good morning Jackson, thank you. <laughs> it's a bit of a funny thing, I don't meet a lot of Jacksons. No, neither do I. <laughs> yeah. um, look, can you start with a description from a clinical perspective, what is toxic masculinity? Toxic masculinity is a sort of catch-all term that's used to talk about the sides of masculinity that cause uh, harm from a gender-based perspective. So it's about rigid gender roles. It's about um, sort of a intensity and a violence that, that emerges from that. And it's about the idea that masculinity very strongly has to be a certain way, uh, that masculinity, um, to be any other way, that, that that is wrong or incorrect or, or, or offensive. Um, and it has incredible connotations for the way that we talk about men's violence. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. It's about a really defined way of men should be. What are some of the ways that this toxic masculinity identifies men and what are some of the spaces that it denies men access to? So from a very you know early age, men and boys are given signals over and over again that this is what a man is. This is how we talk about being a man. We're modelled behaviours. We're shown these different um, ways of being. Um, and what that does is it creates a very rigid idea about what it is. And as you just sort of astutely said, it talks about what we are not and what we are not is feminine, what we are not is soft, we are not uh, emotional, we are not vulnerable. Uh, and that closes us off to a whole range of different experiences, um, which um, is very unhealthy and, and very not good for you, for your partner, for your family and for your community. Yeah, I, I think about things like um, yeah, softness or compassion. 
What are some of the ways, you know, that, that our listeners might be familiar to, those people that are listening that society does? What are some of the specific ways that we are um, conditioned or um, taught about ways we should and shouldn't behave? I think from that very early age, we're given that message, particularly, and I'm speaking very much from a Western white-centric point of view here, and it's important that I I name that um, as we head into this conversation. Um, Men and boys in our culture are given this message that crying's not okay. Boys don't cry. And that's a very, very big one. I know growing up, there was a certain age where uh, it didn't become okay for me to be crying anymore, and I was given that message. Mm -hmm. No one knew that they were doing me any harm. It was considered very normal. We're certainly not implying that families are abusing their children by sending this message, but the the overall impact is quite harmful. You can't cry. You can't be vulnerable. Uh, you can't let someone know that you're scanned. Uh, you can, and you can't be interested in a whole range of different things as as silly as you're not allowed to like the color pink. You're not allowed to wear a bow in your hair. Mm. Certain clothes. Uh, uh, you know, are taboo. And that taboo is a very offensive and strong taboo for people Mm. who are experiencing it in their bodies. And I don't think that's something we talk about very much, which is that idea that if we were to express ourselves in a feminine way, wear makeup, uh, the level of violence that's delivered upon people who do not conform to those gender norms Mm. uh, is very intense. And, um, you know, we saw a resurgence of that last year, as we have, you know, heard about in the previous um, uh, discussion, uh, about what that looks like and um, the harm that that causes in the community. But going back to the, the question about, about boys, they're given these messages, they're modelled certain behaviours about what strength is. Mm. There's a very strong, uh, you know, we're certainly not saying you don't teach your children to be strong, but we don't talk about what resilience is. We talk about a sort of isolated and cold way of expressing yourself. We don't talk about intimacy. We don't talk about touch. And there's a certain age where boys are isolated from casual, uh, affectionate touch. Mm. I think there's been a change in that in recent years. I noticed that some of my younger peers have become a lot more affectionate. Men hug each other now. Mm. That wasn't something that, uh, that happened before. Mm. I was lucky to grow up in a family where my father did hug me all the time mm. um, and did tell me he loved me all the time up until, uh, you know, into his old age. Mm. But that was unusual. You know, I knew that was different. Mm. And I knew that other boys in my life, uh, my friends, didn't have the same experience. And that for them to touch, to be touched, and not in a you know sexual or romantic way, but mm. just to be um, in a in brotherhood uh, or in kindness mm. was um, considered to be very edgy, uh, very hard to hold. Um, and the more you're isolated from those things, the more they become unfamiliar. And I think the more you become afraid. Mm. Um, and that fear, fear and anger are, are very much connected for a lot of people. Mm. Um, and um, this leads to a very um, toxic space. You know, you become unwell, you become isolated from kindness. And as you so beautifully said, softness. Um, you know, you don't have this ability to express yourself and to notice when you're in pain and to ask for help, which are two very simple things that we should be teaching and modeling for young people, I think. Yeah. When you were talking then about, you know, things as simple as, you know, the color pink or, you know, wearing some wearing some jewelry or wearing some makeup and the violence that there is response to that. I, I'm interested in the intersection of kind of um, uh, misogyny and patriarchy and homophobia mm. and how these things um, really in- reinforce toxic masculinity. And I remember when I was 14 and I wanted to stop playing junior football because I wanted to be in the school play. Mm. My coach at the time, response was to use an incredible uh, pejorative um, you know, about being a, a gay man in you know was was why I'd want to go and join the school play now for me 
there were a lot more women in the school play than there were playing football, and that was part of the appeal. But the shame that I was mm. made to feel for mm. wanting to do one mm. rather than the other was really, you know, really strong. And mm. I and I think this um this idea that if you're if you're not being masculine, you know, then then you're being feminine, which is inherently worse, you know, in this patriarchal society. Uh, Hannah Gadsby in her recent show so beautifully put, you know, it, it's very uh, must be very difficult to hate the thing that you're attracted to, and I think there's this incredible violence and dissonance there, and I think what you've so beautifully put out there, there's this message underlying all of this: to be feminine is is bad, to be lesser. Mm. Women are, are worse, and gender non-conforming uh, people and um, people of, of any other gender other than the cis male gender performed in its normative sense mm. is somehow uh, uh, corrupted, uh, offensive, and to be rejected and uh, and attacked. Uh, we know that um, you know uh, women who express themselves in a masculine way experience violence. We know that young men who do something as innocuous as joining the musical theatre mm. uh, experience that, that violence. Um, I know when I became involved in, a, in the theatre um, as a gay man, I became very uh, you know, terrified that people would find out that I was doing something. Um, and there's this level of fear and a level of hate uh, that runs through these basic spaces. And it's so normal. And it's been there for quite, you know, for hundreds of years. It wasn't always the way, mm. um, you know, Gender expression um, has become, in many ways, more rigid in recent times. Um, but um, I wonder if part of that is, especially in recent years, is we are making headway. Mm. Uh, there is hope, um, and often those forces who are, you know, based in a sort of fear-based place, they're a little afraid that they're losing. Mm. There is definitely a kind of panic in the right-wing mainstream media about the loss of traditional masculinity. You know, men can't change light bulbs and all this kind of business. But I'm really interested in your work as a counsellor and educator. What can we uh, do to um, make our young men uh, less toxic, less fearful, and more willing to, um, you know, engage with some... Uh, gender fluidity and some empathy and sympathy, you know, so they're not so rigidly defined by these. Um... I think there's, uh, uh, you know, I think there's two steps that we need to take. The first one is the hard one. We need to identify the problem. We need to have these conversations. We need to be brave. And we need to, as I like to say, sit in our discomfort around some hard things. Um, and then we need to provide an alternative for ourselves. And we need to do that work. We can't expect women... Uh, you know, queer and, and, and gender non-conforming people to do all of that work for us. Uh, we need to sit down and say, who do, you know, who, we, who do we want to be? How do we want to talk about that? And we need to reconnect with brotherhood and we need to reconnect with kindness and softness. Mm -hmm. But there is that uncomfortable conversation. And that can be as simple as noticing how much you talk in a conversation. It can be simple as noticing if you're taking up a bit too much room, um, if you're not inviting in... Um, people who may be otherwise silenced or pushed out of a space, whether they're, uh, it's a, you know, a woman or a, a, um, a non-binary person or um, a person of colour or a person with a disability, uh, you know, noticing when we're doing that, inviting those people in and, and, and listening to their voices, mm. um, asking women, what's your experience of what we're talking about? How do you experience me? Is there anything I could be working on? It's a really edgy question. I was talking to a dear friend of mine over the weekend who said that her partner has been asking her, how do you feel about this? What have you been noticing? Have my efforts been going anywhere? Mm. It's pretty edgy, you know, and I think a lot of men, we're talking about something 
quite confronting and it's important that we say that these young men, they're not toxic themselves, their behaviour is toxic mm -hmm. and the culture, the, the weave that they've been sort of caught up in is toxic. Mm -hmm. But there's also a lot of hope, there's a lot of kindness, there's a lot of role models who are uh, incredibly um, uh, soft and... Um, uh, and kind and compassionate and we can draw in those narratives we can talk about that and then the other very important piece of work is to challenge violence it's really important for us in our families in our communities mm -hmm. to be good bystanders mm -hmm. there's been some great coverage uh, pieces put out by the Victorian government um, which provides some very simple examples about what men can do and what all of us can do to act as good bystanders when we witness violence and when I say violence I mean very small acts up to terrible uh you know the the terrible acts of, of rape and murder that um that have been in our consciousness in the last few weeks it's important we talk about sexual harassment it's important we recognize that toxic masculinity dehumanizes the feminine it dehumanizes anything that isn't masculine mm. it's really important that we uh when we hear someone saying something that feels a bit wrong that we let them know and that can be as simple as saying what did you say can you explain what, where were you coming from when you said that? Mm. I wonder what it is that you expect other people to think when they hear that. How do you think other people might feel? And to say to them, well, I don't find that funny. I'm concerned about that. Mm. And to say, I wonder what you could have said differently. You can ask questions. It doesn't necessarily have to be an overt challenge. And in fact... Uh, we talk about this a lot as as clinicians in our in our work and as group facilitators and as telephone line workers about just inviting a conversation. It's just opening it up. Often people can't see their own blind spots. Mm. And when you say to them, what happened that night? What do you think she would tell me if I asked her that question? What do you think she was feeling? Tell me more about that. How do you think she's feeling now? And another important one might be, how do you think she might be feeling listening to this conversation we're having right now? Mm. And get some real insight. It can be uncomfortable, but it can also be incredibly powerful and transformative. I think you're so right about having those uncomfortable conversations and sitting in that discomfort. And what you said as well about not leaving the work up to women and, um, you know, non cis men um, and others to edu I mean I have to give a shout out to those people in my life that first highlighted to me the ways you know I remember one particular case a good friend of mine Steph you know she suddenly said to me do you know how often when you're talking about women you use the word crazy or mad or irrational as a mm. as a you know and this was you know 10 years ago and and as soon as she said it you know it made so much sense and it and it, you know as opposed to saying that you know she was you know, rightfully upset or mm. annoyed, you know, because of my behaviour. It was just this, you know, this othering and this distancing of, you know, the, whether it was my mother or my friend or my partner yeah. or, you know, just how quickly we this language becomes insidious, you know. And it's, and it's really, I'm thankful to those people that have pointed out those things across my journey. But now it is, it's an exciting time, as you say, to sit, um, you know, for a cis man to sit with other men and tr and uh, and women and ask um, what what we can do and how we can start to change because I don't think there's many cis men who who are comfortable with the current statistics and I think you know a part of the current climate is just feeling um, you know ashamed and appalled as we continue to hear about the you know the, the violence of of men is you know, the the leading killer of both men and women between and 80 and 40. It's um, it's, it's absolutely um, huge. And we, we know that overwhelmingly that the, 
the, the people using these intense levels of violence are men. And uh, we know, you know, that, that, that we have a problem, but I think there's, we often get asked that question, what should I do? And I think part of it is taking on, like you did, some of that labour yourself. Some of it's about Googling and reading. Um, you, we offer some bystander training that people can uh, book in for their football club or their sporting club or, mm -hmm. or their workplace. Uh, a note of violence in that bystander training is about learning some basic skills um, and um, you know learning how to sit in that discomfort and to also invite people in and create connection um, to uh, look at their their beliefs and find other ways of being in the world there's there's it's a long journey it begins with asking what could I do better mm -hmm. the next question after that and this is an edgy one is how did it feel to you listening to me talk about women that way um, and we get into some pretty um, profound territory there when we ask women how do you feel when I behave this way, mm. I asked a friend of mine, oh, I do a lot of, you know, talking, don't I? Um, I've tried to work on my, as we call it, mansplaining, mm. um, to work on explaining things to people who are already uh, quite knowledgeable or assuming a lack of knowledge. Um, uh, but I, I do do a lot of talking and I, I asked someone, how does it feel when I take up that much space? Mm -hmm. And the answer was a bit more depressing than what I was expecting. They said, I'm just so used to it. <laughs> it's not just you yeah. it's everybody and there was a sense of exhaustion in that and i and that helped build my empathy mm. for that um, position and help me work on my behavior yeah and it is you know we had a chat last night and talking about these spaces that you know for me one of the words is is softness you know mm. i mean looking at um how to reclaim that as a man and make it something that defines me i think it's really important i think you know being soft and approachable and kind you mm. know is a really important thing but another was that i'm is a you know a real struggle for me is is quiet yeah just just being quiet in space and um allowing others to speak and it's something that i have to be conscious of you know it's not yeah. just being aware that you have a, a behavioral pattern doesn't change it you know yeah. it's um that's the first the very first step um oh yeah i guess it's a good a good thing to say you know that from two positions i'm interested in what you said about bystander training mm -hmm. you know when when a man is angry or, or violent you mm -hmm. know what is a, a safe way to, to intervene mm -hmm. you know at different levels you know we're seeing in these television ads that you know if a, if a man is being um dismissive or um aggressive over the phone to a partner or a loved one you know that you can say that's not appropriate it's not humorous but in escalating situations what are safe ways to um there's a couple of different approaches. It depends on the situation. Um, it's important to make your own read of the situation and to not put yourself at risk of violence or harm. Um, as you pointed out earlier, um, men are often victims of violence from each other. And it can be as simple as saying to a mate in that example of the phone call, what was going on there? And when they say, oh, you know, this, that and the other, or she's always this way, just saying, I was quite uncomfortable hearing the way you spoke. Positioning your own feelings as a way of empathizing and humanizing in that situation i was wondering how she felt about that you may end up with an argument on your hands you may end up with some disagreement and you can take charge of that by saying look i'm not i'm not interested in in this being a fight i just wanted to let you know how i was feeling and then you might come back to that person later on when they're not feeling as exposed and say to them can we just have a bit of a check-in how are we mm -hmm. about that um you may discover that some of your friends have some beliefs that they're, they're, the phrase doubling down can sometimes happen where a person decides, 
uh, because they've been called out, they're actually going to intensify their position, which is why asking them to discuss and, and, and tease it out is often a better way of, of, dis- of talking to someone mm-hmm. because often it's reflexive. They don't know they're doing it. They don't realize they're doing it. Um, they get some benefit out of it. Um, that they they get a payoff out of it, but by inviting them to think about the broader connotations, they may actually deepen their understanding. In a situation where you're seeing violence directly occur, such as imagine you're on a tram and someone's directly um, uh, verbally abusing somebody and that person is quite shouty, very elevated, perhaps agitated, uh, that may not be appropriate to address that person directly, you know. One of the amazing strategies that's come out of good bystander training around race, uh, racism and, and, and racial vilification has been to approach that person who's being vilified and say, are you okay? Mm. Hey, do you want to come with me? Focus I'm, on that person yeah. rather than the person demonstrating the violence. That's right. Don't even connect with them at all. Mm. Come and sit next to them. How's your day going? You know, let them know that there's someone else who's there with them. It's, breaking it, the circuit. It, it's sad that... You know, you say you can imagine, I think a lot of people in Melbourne can recall those incidents on, on trains, you know, and it's... um, Absolutely. That's great advice to yeah. go and... Because um, I think many of us have been in that situation on public transport where normally a man is behaving appallingly um, and aggressively and there's just this, you know, it's where you go, where is our community standard to these things? And I think... um. Well, the act you walk past is the act you, the act you endorse. You know, silence isn't an appropriate option. It's certainly better than laughing along with it. We talk a little bit in our work <clears throat> as clinicians about colluding. Mm. And colluding means to agree or to laugh or go, sure, you know, to accept a fundamental explanation is true, such as, well, you know, my partner, she really um, made me angry. You know, it's like, well, you know, did she? You know, uh, is your anger actually the point here or is it your behavior? Mm. You know, um, there are some points there that you can choose to just not go with, to just be passive with Mm. Uh, but it's also important that we don't shift into a coercive stance ourselves and elevate the violence and elevate the risk Mm. if you're talking to a man on a tram who's shouting at somebody and you uh you know elevate the situation with your own kind of masculine aggression or toxic masculinity if you go in with a sort of i'm the the warrior or the vigilante that could actually put other people at at risk as well Mm. um and that's why taking that calm approach checking in on your body Sometimes recruiting other people and saying, hey, mate, could you just come over with me and would you check on on her mm-hmm. or on this group of people mm-hmm. um, can be a really powerful intervention and send a really strong message. Mm-hmm. Sometimes as well with a friend, you may choose to um, pick that moment to do it or you may say, I'm going to wait until I've got until they've calmed down a bit and catch them later and go, mate, what's mm-hmm. going on? Mm-hmm. But it's so important to remember that this isn't about them. It's about protecting the people who are on the other side of that violence. Mm-hmm. On that note, if men who are listening are concerned about their anger or violence, what what are some things they can do? I know that uh, where you work, no to violence. Yep, we have a pro, uh, a service called the Men's Referral Service. The Men's Reserve, Referral Service is a, <coughs> pardon me is a place where men can call, have a conversation, and unpack what they're uh, experiencing, the way they're behaving, and find other ways uh, through their relationships and their lives. Excuse me. Mm. And that number, uh, if people would like to call, is one three hundred seven double six four nine one, 766 And uh, we encourage men to call, whether they want to talk about their own experience or to talk about another man in their life. 
whether they'd like to talk about um, how to have a conversation with someone whose behaviour they're concerned about, mm-hmm. or if they themselves are experiencing violence at the hands of a family member, uh, they can call that number and receive some support and, importantly, some referrals, uh, because it's important that that men find uh, the appropriate path through the system that works for them and for their family. Mm. And I'm sure it's very different case by case, but from a starting point, what what kind of, um, and you've touched on it a little about asking the questions about instances, but if someone is really struggling with anger, you know, as, as one emotion, which I think there's um, there's evidence that men, while they may feel anger a lot, may not understand it very well or how to deal with it, how to process it. What are some techniques um, to mitigate anger as an emotion? It's it's incredibly uh, important we tease out uh, anger and violence into two separate things. Anger is a very normal emotion. It's part of the whole spectrum. The problem comes, and again, bring it back to toxic masculinity, when that becomes your primary place of living, where anger becomes a place that you go because you can't deal with the other emotions that may be going on for you. Um, so the first step uh, to manage your anger is to get in contact with your other emotions and to find some ways of, I mean, you know, therapy can be a really powerful one. If you're using violence, um, a men's behavioral change group can be a way of reflecting and getting some insight into the impact of your behavior. But as simple things as taking a time out and picking what I call a choice point. If you know, uh, for instance, that when you get really drunk, uh, you behave in a certain way, then it's important that you don't get that drunk. It's as simple as that. Um, it's important um, that you figure out what it is, who you are, and find other ways, different choices you can make because it's really important to recognize that violence is a choice that we make and that it is related to power and the control of other people. And we need to interrogate and look at the roots of that um, and what what it is we're doing. Um, And that can be a difficult conversation, but uh, with the right support, it can also be a very profound conversation that can lead to a happier and healthier life. Well, Jackson, I want to thank you heaps for coming in and speaking to us this morning about um, toxic masculinity and some of the uh, ways that we can begin to combat that personally and as a society. Um, the number again for the Men's Referral Service is 1300 766 491. And something for me that was um, quite impactful was actually a speech I heard from a comic book writer years ago who spoke about um, ideations of the self that revolve around where I stop and others begin are very dangerous. On a, on a personal level, they lead to neuroses and distance from others. And on a kind of international level, they lead to national boundaries and war. You know, this is the end mm. of me and this is the start of you. And I think, you know, one thing as, as men that, that I try and do is, is, is try and expand my sense of self into other spaces and feel empathy and sympathy mm. to different experiences and stop being so stuck in this box of what it means to be a man um, in this very restrictive restrictive space. But yeah, thanks heaps for, for coming on. No worries. Thanks, Jackson. You've been listening to Monday Breakfast on 3CR. That is all we have time for this morning. Uh, and up next, uh, as always, on a Monday morning is Women on the Line.